My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and it's a, I'll add my welcome to Todd's. We're glad you're here, and particularly if you're visiting, we don't believe you're here by accident in any way. And so, uh, glad you're here on Palm Sunday, um, the, the day we remember, or the, uh, the biblical account of Jesus last week, uh, begins on Palm Sunday, where he uh, will ride into Jerusalem on a colt as it was prophesied in the Old Testament. And as John will tell us in uh, John chapter 12, he rides in and the crowds are there and they're waving palm branches and they're uh, shouting at Jesus, you know, Hosanna, uh, blessed is the king, um, uh, blessed is the one who comes from the Lord, blessed is the one who is the king, the king of Israel. And so that is Sunday, that is today. And then by Friday, what happens in the account um, leading up to next week, which is Easter, by Friday, you have the crowd, whether it's all that crowd or, or just the religious people of the crowd, um, they'll, on Friday morning, not be shouting, King of Israel, they'll be shouting, crucify him, in front of the uh, court, in front of Pilate's uh, governor's uh, digs there. And so there's this change that happens from Sunday's, you know, Hosanna, blessed is the king, uh, blessed is the one who's come from the Lord to crucify him that happens on Friday. And the change comes about, I want to argue this morning, we'll see part of the reason is that the, um, the people in Jerusalem, so we're talking about um, soldiers, and we're talking about the temple guard, and we're talking about religious leaders and Pilate and Judas, and the disciples, that everybody's going to be confronted with Jesus, and what's going to happen is Jesus isn't going to be who they thought he was. Jesus is going to end up being not who they thought he was, not who they want him to be. In fact, for all of us, we come to a place in our life, and sometimes, you know, we may come to that place several times in our life, where we are confronted with the fact that God is not who we thought he was, that, that it's revealed when God shows up and says, you know, I, I am, I am God, and it exposes in our own lives and in our hearts and in our faith where we're actually enemies against God, because we've, we want God, I mean, listen, we want God to be high, and we want him to be holy, and we want him to be loving to me. And we want him to be just to the bad people. And there are things where we can accept. We go, you know what, okay, I know God thinks differently than me about this, and that's all right, we'll, you know, we'll discuss that when I get there or whatever. And then there are things where we're like, no, 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 God thinks exactly the way I do about this. Politically, he thinks exactly the way I do. Yep. He feels the same way I do about those people. And, and we've made this, and, and we're convinced, listen, we wouldn't say this out loud. I mean, it's not like we put this on our Facebook post or anything. But we're convinced God owes us happiness, that he's, he's out for our happiness. And when he doesn't, you know, when, when my happiness is threatened, somehow, somehow God has this wrong. And we're confronted at different times in our life when God shows up and says, hey, I'm, I'm God in the areas of life where we have crafted him in our own image. So there's a couple of things I want you to see this morning, and one of those is that God, Jesus, so beginning in chapter 18 in John's gospel, it begins what we call the passion. And passion is this word that comes down to us through the Latin, and it means suffering. It's the, it's the suffering of Jesus from when he's arrested in the garden to when he's um, nailed on the cross and crucified and died. This is the, the passion of Jesus. And in chapter 18, beginning in chapter 18, if we were just to tell the story, the story sounds like a whole bunch of things that were done to Jesus, and yet what we see is John is going to labor the point, this isn't done to Jesus. This is all done by Jesus because it is the will of the Father. And there's not one thing that we'll encounter in two chapters, 18 and 19, 
that do not happen outside of the will of God and the knowledge and resolve and purpose of Jesus. And like us, it, it challenges what we think about who God is and, and reveals where we are enemies to Him. But the great news is, and as Paul writes it in Romans chapter 5, that for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died, you know who for? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that great news? And so I want you to see this morning how that begins. We'll pick up in some chapter 19 on Friday night, and then Easter morning we will come together and we will uh, consider the resurrection of Jesus. In between then, Wednesday night, we've got a Seder meal uh, that's going to be downtown if you want to come and do that with us. On um, Friday night, we have Good Friday services at all of our campuses. Uh, the information is in your bulletin. If you want to do an Easter egg hunt, you can go out to White House on Saturday. And then on Sunday morning, if you want um, the really spiritual among us, we'll be at the... Um, sunrise service in the back of our property. So you come all the way to the end of the parking lot, and then you can see a path. You can just walk that path, right? There's a pond back there. It is, it is serene. It is wonderful. We did it last year. It was, it was great. One of the best things we did last year. And so 6.30 Sunday morning, we'll have breakfast afterwards, and then you can um, come to one of the services um, after that. Go get all the people that slept in in your house and um, Say, arise, you know, or something like that, you know, some kind of Easter joke. Sorry. All right, uh, moving on. All right, John 18, here we go. I'm, we're just going to walk through this, okay? And, and um, I'm going to get all, I got all the way to the end, and I'm going to get all the way to the end now. So verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, this is the high priestly prayer of um, of. Uh, John chapter uh, 17, uh, where Jesus prays in the presence of his disciples. He went, so after he spoke these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. And there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, <clears throat> they go into this garden. This is at the Mount of Olives. Now, you have Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount. That's in Jerusalem. You have the Mount of Olives just to the east. Between the Mount Moriah and Mount of Olives, you have what is called the Kidron Valley, okay? Kidron means um, dark or murky, um, uh, muddy. Uh, it, during the Passover, it ran red with the blood of the sacrifices, in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, that is, David makes this same walk. He'll, he'll walk barefooted out of the temple uh, or out of Jerusalem as he's being overthrown by his son Absalom. And he will make the long walk, humbling walk, it says, in tears as he goes through the Kidron up to the Mount of Olives. It is in this same area that um, Abraham sacrificed or took his son Isaac up to be sacrificed as God told him, Mount Moriah. And it is where then the, the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus pre-incarnate, says, stop. There's a ram in the, caught in the thicket. You're going to save the boy, sacrifice the ram. There will be a son, a firstborn son, an only son. That is sacrifice, but Abraham, it won't be yours. And so this is the area of the patriarchs and the kings when they find themselves on the moments of God doing what they could not have expected. And so he comes out of Jerusalem, he walks across the Kidron Valley, and there was a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he and his disciples entered 
And there he'll pray where the disciples will sleep. John doesn't tell us any of this, but that's what happens from the other accounts. And then in verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus isn't hiding. He's in plain sight. He knows they're coming to look for him. And he goes to where he can easily be found, where he always is. He's in the garden. And I think John, I mean, he leaves this sort of ambiguous. You're like, John, you know, but it's the Garden of Gethsemane. John, don't you know? Don't you know all these things? And John's like, yeah, I do know it. And I'm wanting to draw your attention to something maybe even more than just that garden. You know, John's not, not shy, not hesitant about taking us back to the beginning. In the beginning of John's gospel, he takes us back to Genesis. You know, in the beginning, he says... Here, I think he's taking this also back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 2, to the garden, when Adam brought death into the world in a garden. And the second Adam, Jesus, he's going to inaugurate new life starting in this garden. Becomes the place of redemption, not rebellion. One of the great reversals. And John's portraying this garden. Not only is, is, it, is it the, do we see the, the depth of human sin, and we're going to see that. But you get to glimpse into a greater depth of God's grace and his mercy. Well, you get to verse 3. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, a or a cohort of soldiers. This would be, you know, um, a cohort of, of Roman soldiers was about 600 soldiers. If you've ever been to the Garden of Gethsemane, you realize it's a pretty small place for 600 armed Roman soldiers. And it says there are also officers from the chief priests. These are like the military police, the temple police. They're the officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It's like a witch hunt. And it's fascinating the way that they were being told the story that here they go and they're, they're armed and they're, uh, you know, they're, they're in for the search. They're, 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 uh, they're ready for a night-long search of Jesus and yet they go to where they knew they would find him and he's there. And you can hear the irony in John's writing. They take torches and lanterns to search for the light of the world. There he is. In verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? He's not hiding. He comes straight out. If you remember, you go back to chapter 6, the crowd comes, they try to seize Jesus after the miracle that he does of, of, the, of the changing, the, the, the the feeding of the 5,000, they come to him. They want to seize him and make him king, and he just disappears. I mean, he just disappears. Here they've come to seize him, and he steps forward. Who are you looking for? In verse 5, it says, They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Literally, he says, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth? I am, Jesus says. Look at what happens in verse 6. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, or I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Get the picture in your mind. 600 maybe, 200 to 600 Roman soldiers and the military police are there to seize Jesus. And he steps forward. Who are you looking for? 
Jesus of Nazareth. And then I have to think, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how it goes. I mean, did Jesus can't help it? I mean, that's not, he sure he can help it. Uh, but if for like one second, he lets the glory of who he is seep out. I am. And at a word, they fall to the ground. That word is used. It's used in Matthew chapter 2 when the wise men appear before the infant Jesus. They fall to the ground in worship. It is the same word used in the transfiguration when the disciples there, they catch a glimpse of Jesus in his glory and they can do no other than to fall to the ground. It is the same language John will use when he writes Revelation and he hears the voice of Jesus and he turns around and there he is. And he falls to the ground. We're reminded of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I don't think this is worship. I think this is they cannot help it. They are in the presence of I am. Now, they're going to get up. They're going to dust themselves off. They're going to go ahead and arrest Jesus, but they will never forget that with a word, he could have destroyed them. You go to Revelation, and Jesus comes riding on the white horse. You know where the sword comes out of? His mouth. It's right. You're right. The word of God speaks. Well, the, um, so they're on the ground, and he asks them again, so who do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. I have to think they kind of mumbled at that time. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Here's Jesus you know where he says, and he's going to go on to say this, but man, he, he's protecting the disciples. It's his instinct, his divine instinct. He is the protector. He is the savior. He is the substitute. I'll come with you. But, but you're going to leave these men alone. Well, this is where it gets interesting. So this was to fulfill the word that he'd spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. He said this back in 13. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I mean, here it is, Jesus. He has protected his disciples. He has restrained in all divine restraint his glory. And he has put his hands out. You want to bind me? You want to take me? Here. And then He's ready for the salvation event to begin, the, the redemption history to be inaugurated. And so it is just in one of those kinds of important, pivotal, milestone moments that you cue Peter, right? It's like, oh, this is significant? I'll get in on it. You ever watch uh, the series 24 with Jack Bauer? You know, the, um, uh, the, the anti-terrorist Christ figure, uh, Jack Bauer? And he has the daughter. You, you know who I'm talking about? The, the rebellious, troubled teenager who is always, in, like, that she made, she would almost ruin the show for me. My stress level would get so high because she would do the dumbest things. This is Peter. Jack Bauer's daughter. And so he pulls his sword out, and um, I love, you know, it's like, uh, it's, it's like one 
uh, guy says here, he's either tremendously accurate with a sword, meaning he, he meant to cut his ear off, or he's incredibly inept with a sword. He's either so accurate he could pick an ear off or so incapable that he would miss a head. See, the beginning of verse 4 makes clear Jesus is in charge of the whole deal. He has full knowledge. They're there to restrain him. The greatest restraint going on is Jesus himself. Can you imagine the legions of angels? Matthew tells us. In fact, that's what Jesus will say to Peter in Matthew's gospel. Do you not think it could call 12 legions of angels right now? They're on the ready. They're leaned in with a whisper. They will come and cut through the souls of those Roman soldiers. Put your sword away. Peter's courage, you got to think about it for a second. I mean, pulls his sword in front of 200 to 600 men because he thought Jesus needed him. And yet Peter will cower to the questions of a servant girl when he realizes Jesus doesn't need him. Listen, this is how it goes. Who Peter thought Jesus was is beginning to unravel for him. Oh, it had already unraveled for Judas. Of course, the, the, the Roman soldiers, uh, they, they, they're struck by that. Of course, they didn't know who Jesus was until he says, I am, and they find themselves laying on the ground. But it is the undoing of everybody's idea of who God is. So Jesus rebukes Peter and says, hey, put it away. I'd been praying about, we don't have it in John's gospel, but the other, he's been praying about the cup he brought, some, he brought Peter with him. Peter and James and John, come with me, and I want you to pray for me while I'm praying. I want you to watch over me. Just encourage me, just knowing that you're praying for me will help me in this moment as he goes to the Father, and he prays to the Father. I pray that this cup might pass from me. But not my will, your will. And he comes back and we find that Peter's been asleep. And the cup that he's praying about is the cup that the Old Testament prophets used as an image to talk about the wrath of God. That the cup was filled, foaming, with the infinite wrath of God, filled to the brim and overflowing and it is the cup that God had designed. It was his eternal judgment, his infinite wrath to be poured out onto all humanity, onto all sin. And yet Jesus comes and says, I will drink the cup. Listen, Jesus, there's a 12 hours. You can watch Mel Gibson's movie. It is fantastic. It is 12 hours of the physical, human agony he will, um, he will experience. But he doesn't sweat blood thinking about some Roman soldier whipping the skin off of his back. The reason he anguishes in the garden and sweats blood is because he knows he's going to drink the cup of wrath. You know, I say this periodically. But, you know, we can't understand what it means that God loves us. The, the love of God. It is hard. We, we cannot get there until we understand that God is a God of infinite grace. Which means he gives to us what we could never deserve. But you can't understand that he's a God of infinite grace until you realize that you understand he's a God of infinite mercy. Which means he does not give to us what we deserve. But you can't understand that until you come to grips with the reality that God is a God of infinite wrath. And that you and I were born as objects of that wrath. 
because He is holy and we are sinful. But you can't understand that until you understand that God is a God of infinite glory. High and lifted up and majestic above all things. And it's Jesus that steps in out of grace and mercy to drink the cup of wrath so that we can be reconciled to the glory of God. Peter, would you have me not drink the cup? Do you want to drink it? Do you? I have to drink the cup so that I can offer you the cup. I drink the cup of wrath. You have the cup of grace. So they arrest him. There are going to be six trials Jesus will undergo. Not all of them formal, but there will be six trials in the means of from informal interrogation all the way to formal trial. Jesus will be found not guilty in all six of the trials. And yet at the end, he will be condemned to execution on a cross. John does not give us all six of them. There are three religious trials and three civil trials, three Jewish trials, three Roman trials. The Jewish trials is the informal interrogation by Annas, then there will be Caiaphas the high priest, then the Sanhedrin. The Roman trials then pick up. He's delivered to Pilate. Pilate hands him to Herod. Herod hands him back to Pilate. And his, and his judgment will be executed then. John gives us a glimpse here of how it goes. In verse 12, it says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, what this, so what's going on here is, and John, I think, is creating some intentional confusion, okay? Annas, you think of him, he's like Marlon Brando, all right? He's Don Corleone. And he is the high priest for about 10 years, about 20 years before this. And high priests, in the Old Testament, how it was meant is they would be appointed for life, except the Romans got involved and said, you know what, we don't really like any one man over there, uh, any Jew having that much power. So they would, they would force a change. And so uh, Annas is the high priest for about 10 years. His influence rises. They um, dethrone him as high priest. And then what happens is, is, is the next five high priests are his sons. It's five sons. And then after the fifth son, it's his son-in-law. So he's like the, he's the Don. He's the patriarch of this high priest family. You know, and he's seated back in the big chair, and they're bringing Jesus to him, you know? Because they got to get his blessing. They want, they want to know what he can find out from him. He's supposed to be intimidating. And then he tells us in verse 14, now it's Caiaphas, that's the high priest. He's the one who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This happens in chapter 11. You can go back there. Jesus has raised Lazarus. All the chief priests, they come around, they go, this Jesus is a problem, and he raised Lazarus. I guess we'll have to kill, you know, Lazarus and and then... You know, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what to do about Jesus. And then Caiaphas is the one who's, the, who's pragmatic. says, you guys can't make the hard decision, and I'll tell you what has to happen. It is better that one man die than we all suffer. 
then we lose the power we have with Rome, then, then our lifestyle gets threatened, the, the balance of power, you know, it's, it's better that one man die than we upset all of these things. And so they began to hatch the plan against Jesus in chapter 18. Here it's coming to fruition. But listen, he's more than pragmatic. He's a prophet. And he doesn't even know it. Because it's not Caiaphas' idea that one man die for the sake of the others. You know whose idea that is? God's. And Jesus, knowing all things, will stand in front of his father-in-law, fearless. Now, verse 15, pick this up with me. So Simon Peter follows Jesus, and so did another disciple. We don't know who the other disciple is. It is very likely it is John, the gospel writer. He, you know, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He veils himself in the text. Now, he doesn't veil Peter. And I think old man John, I've told you this before, I think sometimes he smiles, thinks fondly of his friend. Oh, Peter. And I think he also, so that we wouldn't miss what there is to learn about Peter. So we wouldn't, we, if he just said, so Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did I. And I'm the one who had favor with the high priest. And I'm the one that beat Peter to the tomb. And I'm the one that didn't deny it. Focus is not supposed to be on John. We're to look deeply into Peter. Since that disciple, the other one, probably John, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the servant girl, and kept watch at night and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Kind of in disbelief, in a little disdain. What would you follow this guy for? You mean the guy they just bound and drug in in the middle of the night? And you're not one of his followers also, are you? And so Peter will utter the words, I am not. There's a word play here, I think. Jesus at the same time, he's been in the garden. He'll stand before the, the high priest and the, 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 who are I am. And then you have Peter. I am not. John is not embellishing. He is giving us the facts. They are enough, however, to pull us into the drama. Verse 18, now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire. If you want, you could underline that, circle it. It becomes prominent in chapter 21, which is one of the greatest scenes in all the Bible. But they made the charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also with them, standing and warming himself. Man, he's there. He, he's warming the outside. His heart, however, is getting cold. And there is this sense in which I think Peter stands there. He is disillusioned. He has got to be disoriented. All of the sudden, I mean, he thought, listen, Jesus is coming in. He's going to come in, and, and he's going to be the king. And I, I'm going to show him my skills with the sword. And I could be maybe the general of the army. And I mean, he, everything he thought and desired and wanted from Jesus has unraveled. And yet Jesus had already told him, before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. Peter says, I won't do that. But Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. Now what happens is John sort of stops the narrative here. He comes back to Annas. He wants Peter's place to hang in the air. And in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. There's this 
ambiguous thing. So, so who's the high priest? Is it Annas? Is it Caiaphas? Well, th- this is Annas here, but he calls him the high priest. And I think John's creating this confusion so that we enter in the confusion and we're like, okay, who's the high priest? You know what the answer is? Jesus is the high priest. Who's the one that's going to mediate for the people what God has to say? Well, it's not Annas and it's not Caiaphas. The true high priest is there and he's bound and he's being mocked because we really don't want to hear who God is. We really don't want to hear what he has to say. We will go to great lengths to protect the image we've created of our own God. Well, in verse 20, Jesus answered him, So he's questioning him about two things, his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him. Now he's going to stay silent about the disciples, but he's going to say about his teaching here, he says, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. You want to know what I said? Pick anybody out there. I will not stand here and incriminate myself in front of you. You want to know? You go ask. You go find your witness. He says, why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them, and they know what I said. And then in verse 22, so interesting. When he said these things, one of the officers, this is the temple guard, one of the, the, the um, Jewish police, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Listen. I think it's one of the most gracious scenes in all the Bible. This man has struck the Son of God in the face. And Jesus' answer to him is, if what I said is wrong, show me. If what I have said is right, why did you strike me? Now, there's a sense in which we, I think, if we peer into this, we can become very uncomfortable. And where we're uncomfortable is this. You ever struck out against God? Why have you done this? Why would you treat me this way? Who do you think you are? Don't you see me? Don't you care about me? We we do this thing. And we lash out. And there is this tremendous grace that gets poured out on this. Can you imagine? I'm just thinking like Michael or Gabriel up there and say, oh, no, he didn't. Why do you strike me? Because I'm not who you thought I was. Because when I show up and I say, I am, that unravels who you've created me to be. Annas gets nowhere. There is no verdict he can make. So in 24, he sends him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. It is at this point that the the Jews... Uh, begin to rough him up and to mock him and to spit on him. We find this out from the other accounts. John then picks back up in verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of the disciples, are you? 
And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, a relative of Malchus, says, wait, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. John doesn't give us the detail of what's going on that the other gospel writers do that he catches Jesus' eye, and he weeps bitterly. Everything he thought Jesus was, I mean, not everything, but he wasn't. Who is this man? Who have I followed? I thought he was the Son of God. I thought he was the Messiah. And yet he's just handed himself over. And he finds himself denying Jesus. And notice the grace in this. It is in the very act of the denial as the rooster crows that the sovereignty and control and majesty of Jesus shows up as Peter remembers. Before that rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. There's a confirmation there. Deeply sad, deeply troubling. In fact, in Mark's gospel, when the women come to the tomb and they don't find Jesus and the angel is there and he says, hey, I want you to run back and I want you to tell the disciples and Peter that he's risen. I mean, something grips your heart there. It's like even the angels saw this. Even the angels peered in to this moment. They see his failure. Yet they want him to know. Peter, there's hope. In fact, what's so interesting is years later, Peter will write in his letter, his letter, 1 Peter, he'll say, um, this, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, I think Peter learns this over the years. You cannot die for Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus until Jesus has died for you. You have to come to that, but do you know Jesus died for you? He doesn't need you. You need him. And he died for you. Well, moving on, you got the, the examination by Pilate. They, they led Jesus from uh, uh, Caiaphas to, to Pilate in, in verse 28. Uh, they did not enter, so the Jews don't enter because they don't want to defile themselves. They're happy to hand the Son of God over and mock him and torture him, but they don't want to become unclean so they can eat Passover. It's a lot of irony here. So Pilate went outside to them and said, well, what accusation do you bring against this man? He would have already known. He would have uh, blessed the, the cohort of the Roman soldiers, but he's going to make them go through the paces. And in verse 30, they answer, if this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. We just want you to sign the paper, Pilate. So Pilate said to them, so they have this, it is is documented in the first century. Pilate's relationship with the Jews was nothing but antagonistic. It was, it, um, they hated each other. But they need Pilate to do their bidding. Pilate said to them, verse 31, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Well, they could have stoned him, but they didn't want to stone him. They wanted him to be humiliated on a Roman cross. And, verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Even here, Jesus is in control. 
So Pilate entered his headquarters and called Jesus to him and said, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Is this your idea, Pilate? Or is this from information that you got? Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Then it's as though he leans in and says, All right, Pilate. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Are you one of them? And Pilate will answer, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews, told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Pilate is a skeptic. He is no friend of the Jews. He stands face to face with the truth. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yet his response is, what is truth? Truth can't really be known. Can't be found in one place, Jesus And so he takes a position, he looks down upon, he's he's this mocking tone, this pity, this, you know, you're you're just a a fanatical, you're you're following a phantom, but yet the truth is Pilate's judgment is that Jesus is not guilty. And then he takes the opportunity to stir up the Jews again even more by calling him the king of the Jews, and then he'll sanction a flogging and a mockery. And by the time this is all over, he'll sanction the crucifixion of an innocent man. He'll get delivered over to Herod. John makes no mention of that. And then he'll come back to Pilate. But in the meantime, what Pilate has offered is what he refers to as the custom of Passover. Barabbas has already had his execution scheduled for crucifixion. They've already put uh, Barabbas' cross, they've already made the preparations for it. It has his name on it. In fact, it's Barabbas' cross that Jesus is crucified on. So in a very real sense, Barabbas is the very first person saved by Jesus' crucifixion. He's the picture, actually, of every one of us who have been saved by Jesus' death. I mean, it's not just Barabbas' cross. It's my cross. It's your cross. We're condemned to die. The the cross is prepared. The sentence is announced. The judgment's imminent. Jesus takes onto himself Barabbas' curse, his judgment. Your curse, my curse, your judgment, my judgment. Listen, Barabbas is not innocent. He's not declared innocent. He's guilty. Yet the judgment is executed on another. And because of that, he gets to go free. See, the Jews thought they were choosing between the Son of Man and the Son of God. It was really God who was initiating a whole new custom called the New Covenant. That the Lamb of God, the firstborn of the Son... that he would lift him up and we would be passed over. He would take the wrath, we would get the grace. Jesus is the great substitute who by his life and by his work and by his sacrifice took your place and mine. He became sin so that you could become a son or a daughter. 
no longer children of wrath. We now can be called children of God. True sons and daughters of the one true God. This doesn't happen to Jesus. You know who all this happens to? It happens to us. As we're confronted with who God really is. And if he shows up this morning and says, I am, what part of you gets revealed as being enemy to God? Do you trust him? You're willing to look, you're willing to hear, willing to see into who he is and what it is he has done. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the preserving these words, for inspiring John to put these words to paper, and then for the, the church to preserve it. And that, Father, in all that, even today, even this morning, even in these moments, it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so I Pray as you have promised, your word does not return void. Would it do inside of us what you intend it to do? Father, would you do in us what only you can do? Peel away the parts of you we have created in our own image, by our own desires, our own wants, our own thoughts. And that, Father, we would hear, I am. Fall to the ground. And trust you. As we receive your grace. Father, for the time we've had, we commit to you.